Well, this week I was talking with someone who was deceived by a very, very clever sales pitch. And they ended up spending a lot of money on something they really didn't want and something they really, really didn't need. They were lured into it, and you can imagine the feelings they had. They felt very, very embarrassed. They felt like they were stupid. They were full of anger and regret and wish they could go back and change the decision. You can imagine those feelings. And thankfully, in the bigger scheme of life, the damage was not all that great. But imagine if that deception cost them something of much greater value. Imagine if that deception cost them their very life, or even worse, cost them the state of their eternal soul. Today's passage is a warning for us. It's a warning for us from our Heavenly Father, who we just sang about, as followers of Jesus, to be careful that we're not lured into a deception that the world has. A deception that can cause us at best to follow Jesus half-heartedly, at worst to walk away from him forever. We are in a series, as many of you know, going through the book of Revelation. We started it back in January. We're going through it chapter by chapter. And today we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 17. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn it on or open it up to Revelation chapter 17. And it's been a wonderful journey through the book of Revelation. I've uh, received some encouragement from some of you saying, man, I've read Revelation lots of times. I never totally understood it. Things are starting to make sense. And that's just uh, music to my ears. So I'm so glad that this is happening. Praise God he is doing that. Today's passage is absolutely chock full of apocalyptic literature. And that's a phrase we've encountered throughout this uh, series, but I want to highlight it again and explain it. It's full of lots of symbolism. Apocalyptic literature is full of all sorts of symbols and artistic images. And we as 21st century Christians read it and have a very hard time understanding it. We say, what's he getting to? Why doesn't he just spell it out? Why doesn't he just say it? But the original audience that John was writing this letter to encountered apocalyptic literature all the time. For them, in fact, it would probably be much easier for them to understand some of the things that we're going to see in our text today versus us. Because they had a culture where apocalyptic literature was commonplace, where we're not. And so we're trying to catch up and learn about this and dive deeper into it. And this particular chapter today is absolutely full of apocalyptic literature. Tons of symbols, tons of imagery that may not make sense. And so I'm going to ask you to hang on with me. I'm going to do my best to get you through, all right? And so one of the things we have to remember that we've been talking about, and let me see if second service you can respond as well as first service did, is we have to always remember when we open God's word that the Bible is not written to us. It's written for us. Yes, you made my day. 
The Bible's not written to us, it's written for us, right? And so we have to understand we're not the original audience and, and the number one spot we go to to interpret the scriptures is who is the original audience and what were they thinking and what was this, how is this letter being written to them? And so we're going to be all in that this morning. So in your Bible, Revelation chapter 17 is there. My main point this morning is that Christians have an enemy, Satan, who wants to use the ways of the world to lure us from Jesus. And we must be wise and live in this life aware. We have to be aware of this temptation and plan. To do otherwise would be eternally foolish. So last week we saw that the wrath of God and final judgment was poured out in chapter 16. A couple weeks ago in chapter 15 we saw that heaven's response to this judgment being poured out was worship because God and his justice was moving. And now after the wrath of God is poured out, if you remember last week the final bowl of wrath was dumped and it, the angel said, it is done. So the wrath was completed, judgment was done, and now all heaven seems quiet. Then all of a sudden, one of the angels that poured out the bowl of wrath and the final judgment comes and taps John on the shoulder and pulls him aside and gives him a behind-the-curtain peek at some events that led up to the judgment. That's what's happening in Revelation chapter 17. And he uses all sorts of imagery to explain this. And so the first thing we want to see is this, and the angel's vision of this deceiving woman who is a symbol of something we're going to look at. The angel's vision of this deceiving woman, there's not a real woman there, this is symbolic, it's part of the apocalyptic language. It's a symbol of something that we need to catch. So let's look at chapter 17 and look at the first six verses. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. That's many of the nations, as we saw earlier in Revelation. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. There I saw a woman on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. Wow. Tons of imagery there. What does this mean? First thing that's going to help us, that we need to understand, is many, many times throughout the Bible, when we see sexual immorality, it symbolizes spiritual infidelity. When we see immorality in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and we talked, there's tons of Old Testament in Revelation, immorality is a symbol for spiritual infidelity. We see it in Hosea, we see it in Jeremiah, we see it in the Proverbs, we see it in minor prophets. 
When we see in this case this sexual immorality and the images of that placed here, it's a symbol that the people of God have wandered away from him, disobeyed him, worshipped themselves or other idols. It was often depicted in marital immorality and infidelity. So when you read things like prostitution here, you need to realize it's symbolic of human beings running away from God and turning their heart affections to the things of this world or to themselves. That's what is happening here. This woman does not want us to be faithful to Jesus. And symbolically, she has made it her mission to entice as many followers of Jesus away from him as she possibly can. That's why symbolically she's presented to us as a prostitute. But not just a prostitute. It says the mother of all prostitutes. She symbolizes this ultimate influence in our world this spiritual luring away the people of God from God and his ways. This influence that comes to us as the people of God and even people who are not of God to lure them far away from the things of God. There's this power, there's this influence that's at work in the world and that's who this woman represents. That's the symbol she is. This luring away. And verse 3 tells us she's sitting on the beast. As we saw before, that's the Antichrist. There is this relationship between this influence in the world to lure people away from God and the Antichrist. That makes sense. The Antichrist wants to deceive as many people as possible. And when you read verse 7, it's, or verse 4, describing this woman... It sounds like the profile this woman would have on a dating app. Look at verse 4. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand. But it wasn't a golden cup filled with normal drink. It was filled with blood and abominations. It was filled with the blood of all those who refused and rejected her. Those who had wisdom as followers of Christ walking in the world, that when the temptation and the lure of the world's ways came to pull them away from Christ, they resisted and they were faithful and it cost them their lives. Those who had wisdom to see her for she, who she really was, someone out to destroy and to lead them away from the living God. Again, you have to think spiritual infidelity here. She tried to entice them, but they resisted her and her ways. And they patiently endured her persecution to the point of death while waiting for Jesus Christ, their true bridegroom, to return. Also mingled in the cup are her disgusting ways and tricks. And there's a name on her forehead, as we said in verse 5. It says, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. This symbolic woman represents the culmination 
of the world's ways to attempt to lead the people of God away from God. She's also known as Babylon the Great. We have seen Babylon before the book of Revelation in the Bible many times. Babylon was an ancient city that was always opposed to the ways and the person of God. Here Babylon is being used to portray anything that leads God's people away from God to become obsessed with themselves. Babylon was the place where the Tower of Babel was constructed in Genesis 11. In that story, there was a group of people who said, we don't want God in our life. We don't want to be ruled by God. We don't want to have anything to do with God. We're going to, in fact, build our own tower and we're going to become God ourselves. And they began to build this tower and God intervened in Genesis 11. That took place in Babylon. Babylon was also the superpower that invaded Jerusalem and Judah in 586 BC, where King Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, who invaded Jerusalem, said in Daniel 4.30, Is this not Babylon that I have built the glory to my majesty, the glory of living apart from the living God? That's what Babylon represents. This woman is symbolic of that. So although Babylon was an ancient geographic location that's in modern-day Iraq, the use of it here is bigger. When we say Babylon, we're not just talking about a geographic place. It's like when we use the word Wall Street. We're not always talking about the street that's in New York City. There's a, an influence about it. There's an aura about it. And that's how Babylon is being used here. Babylon is humanity's intent to live apart from God. It's humanity's intent to live apart from God. And this woman represents the world's opposition to God and his church. She represents the world's opposition to God and his church. And we can see this symbolic woman's influence in our world today, can't we? Are there things in our world that are in direct opposition to, from God? Are there things in our world that are in direct opposition to God's ways? Are there things in our world that are direct opposition to God's gospel? Some of those even creep into the church. Jesus Christ went to a cross as we sang. He poured out his blood. He paid for our sin. He gives us the free offer of salvation. That if we repent and believe, we can live for him empowered by the Holy Spirit. But yet what creeps into the church is this idea that we have to somehow earn it. That we have to pay it back. There's so many influences out there trying to distort the truth of God. And this woman is a symbol of all of that. And noticed she's controlled by the Antichrist. Some would say, well, if I saw her, I'd stay away from her. I run from the things of this world that she represents. But we have to see that these verses say something otherwise. She, this influence of the world, has an appeal to it. She looks appealing. She's attractive. 
She has seduced many away from following Jesus. She, meaning the ways of the world living in opposition to God, is attractive and fun and powerful and cool. The world's ways are enticing as they try to lure Christians away from God. She's the type of person you'd want to take a selfie with so all your friends can see how with it you are when it comes to the ways of the world. How in line and how in sync. And if you look at the end of verse 6, John says this, When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. He was astonished. He was astonished that something that is pure evil could look so appealing. Something that was pure evil that would result in death could look so attractive. But the angel is about to show John something else. As well as showing John his original audience those churches that we saw in chapters 2 and 3, as well as us here today. Now let's look at the destiny of this woman in verses 7 to 18. First, verses 7 and 8. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? See, God wants us to be wise in this world. Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished When they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. The angel is now explaining this mystery of this woman and the beast. The beast is the Antichrist who's always trying to deceive the people of God by taking a little bit of truth and just twisting it a little bit. Remember we saw this in chapter 13 where we saw the unholy trinity. The dragon, the beast of the sea, the beast of the earth. There was this unholy trinity mocking the true trinity because, remember, it wasn't that Satan wasn't creative enough and he needed to copy what God did, but he was trying to deceive as many God's people as he can. So he wants to look as much like God as he possibly can. There's this deception that's happening in the beast. And it's amazing how this angel depicts and pulls this out. Last week, we sang a song at our close where we talked about God the Father, who was, who is, and evermore shall be. And the church through the ages has sung that, has said that phrase, who was, who is, whoevermore shall be. Look at the flip side and paradox in this verse. Who once was, now is not, and yet will come to destruction. Then we see something about this woman. She gets all of her power, all of her presence, all of her allure, all of her attractiveness from the beast. The negative influences in our world that pull us away from Christ flow from the beast in this instance 
back up directly to the heart of Satan himself. The beast, the Antichrist, uses all the ways of the world to get people to turn their back on God. And now the beast, who is the Antichrist, is copying Jesus like he did back in chapter 13. He imitates King Jesus and sets up all he can against Jesus and his people. Here we see the beast is propping this woman up, whispering in her ear, giving her cues, empowering her evil, giving her provisions. The beast is the one fueling the influences in this world that pull our hearts away from God. And it's not always easy to recognize and requires discernment. But let us dig a little deeper. Look at verses 9 to 11. This calls for a mind with wisdom. Amen. God give us wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen One is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was, now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. All the enemies of God will be destroyed in that final day of judgment that we saw in the previous chapter. But what I want you to pay attention to here which is probably one of the most important verses in this section that I just read to interpret what's happening, is the woman is seated on seven hills. That doesn't mean much to us. But John's original audience would key into that in a heartbeat. All the bells would be going off in their mind. John's audience would recognize that as the city of Rome. Rome was a city built on seven hills. That's what they called it. And Rome glittered with the abundance of wealth. Rome was alluring and powerful. Rome was attractive in its day. That's where all the action was taking place. It was the heart of the Roman Empire. And anyone who was anyone wanted to be in Rome. Because they wanted to see where the action is. Anyone who was anyone wanted to engage and be part of the Rome. It was the center of the empire. It was power, it was prestige, it was fame. Even the early church of God wanted to go and plant churches in Rome because they wanted a gospel influence in such a strategic and influential city. You saw in Romans 15, Paul's heart was always to go to Rome and then on to Spain from there. We saw in chapters 2 and 3, letters to different churches. Do you remember that? Way back in January, we saw these letters to these seven churches. And almost in every single one of them, the charges that were brought against them were because they were bowing to temptations that were existing in the Roman Empire. It was the appeal of Rome that was pulling away at their hearts. Rome was very hostile to Christianity. They had an emperor named Nero who took sport of burning Christians at the stake and sending them to lions. Of course, John is using Rome as a symbol and this great prostitute to represent more than just the ancient city of Rome. But it's interesting that by leaving out the name, the city of Rome, it makes this passage timeless to all of the readers. But you can't miss something in this passage The reference to Babylon 
And the reference to Rome is significant to us today. We see lots of Babylons and Romes in our day as well, don't we? And here's what they symbolize. First, they symbolize regimes that attract the masses. Second, they symbolize people who have declared their own greatness above God. That was common in Babylon and common in Rome. We are stronger than God. Why would we worship him? They represent those who've rejected any need for God. Because we are stronger than him, we don't need him. And finally, they oppressed and tormented all who were faithful to obey God and walk out his ways. This is kind of what we're all part of the Babylon and Rome cities. These are things, this is the influence they had in the world. And so this is what's happening. All of this is wrapped up in this symbol of this woman. And the symbols and examples build on one another. That's confusing for us as times, but the original audience would have said this is mastery. Look at verses 12 to 14. Then ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, faithful followers. Once again, there is nothing, nothing that can overcome the power and the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. We see it as a consistent theme all through Revelation. These kings that are not in power yet, destined to reign, are symbols of all the evil kings on the earth at the time of God's final judgment. And it says they will rule for one hour under the beast. Most Interpreters believe that's referencing the tribulation, which we'll talk about more in a few weeks. But we see once again, nothing can stop our king, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world with him and his faithful followers ruling and reigning. We will also find that this woman is being deceived as well. The beast who empowers her, who carries her on his back, will turn on her like he turns on all. In fact, we will read that the beast hates her and all those she influenced. Look at verses 15 to 18 as we wrap this up. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. By agreeing to hand her over to the beast, their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city, that great influence that rules over the kings of the earth. God is not the author of evil. God is not the author 
of evil. But he uses present-day evil to accomplish his purpose. And that's what we see here. Even the selfish motive of the Antichrist cannot overcome God's purpose and power. God is too wise. He's too sovereign. He's too powerful. He says, I will work that into my purpose and you will be defeated. A selfie with this woman is worth something for a brief moment. But the day will come when her provider, the beast, will turn on her and destroy her as well. Notice all of her riches. The fine gold is gone. The great image is gone. She's left exposed and humiliated. The influence of the Antichrist and Satan in the world will come to an end in the judgment of Christ. The satanic alliance with the prostitute and the beast will disintegrate. And we see here that God sovereignly uses his enemies to accomplish his purpose and to rule and reign because his enemies are no match for God. So what do we do with this very apocalyptic text? What does this mean for us today? We live in the midst of a lot of Babylonians and a lot of Romans. There's a lot of Babylon, Babylons and Romes among us. We live in a society that consistently opposes God. We live in a society, this influence, that constantly mocks what God says in the Bible, and even at times the lies seep into the church, and the church blows off the word of God and adapts and accommodates to worldly influence. We live in the midst of Babylon's and Rome's. We shop Babylonian markets. We wear Babylonian clothes. We benefit from Babylonian and Roman privilege. We're immersed in this world. We take part in Babylonian Roman entertainment. And the church through the ages has said this biblical quote many times, that we live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. I don't know if you noticed, but that seems to be getting harder and harder to do lately, isn't it? We live in the world, but we're not to be of the world. So how do we do that? As followers of Jesus Christ, it is important for us to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts often and to see where the affections of our hearts are lining up. If you're taking notes, write down Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Psalm 139, 23, and 24. It's a prayer at the end of the psalm that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And if there's any offensive way in me, lead me in the way of everlasting. That's a prayer that Christians in the 21st century should pray consistently to make sure our hearts are not bending in allegiance away from Jesus Christ. God, search my heart. If there's anything in me that's bending away from you and adapting to this world, bring it to my attention that I can repent and ask forgiveness and turn from that and turn in total faithfulness to you. We should regularly pray that prayer. I think we need to ask ourselves questions like this as well. 
Have I become so attached to certain comforts and luxuries in this life that I would resent God if he took them away? Have I become so attached to certain comforts and luxuries in this life that I would resent God if he took them away? Or how about this one? Have I allowed myself to be seduced in maybe little ways or even greater ways by the ways of this world? Or how about this one? Have some of the pleasures of this life in this world, the enjoyment of things like sports, hobbies, entertainments, and food crossed a line in my heart where they are now so important to me that because of them, I have very little time for God. Do I care more and get more excited about worldly things than I do the things of God? These questions are all in the notes in our YouVersion app. Maybe it'd be good to take 10 or 15 minutes alone this week with these questions and have a dialogue with the Holy Spirit about them and say, God, what would I answer when it comes to these questions? And if the answers to these questions are not honoring to God, it doesn't mean you beat yourself up. It means you run to your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you say, Jesus, forgive me for the ways my heart has been attached to this world. Will you please forgive me? I repent. Will you fill me with your grace and your power that I could stand faithful to you in the midst of this worldly influence? You run to your Savior. That's what he wants. That's what honors God. Not a beating of your own flesh. It won't work, but a running to the Savior of grace and power, and strength. John wants us to see our current world for what it really is. So much so in one of his other letters, he spelled it out plainly like this. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, he's talking about the influences not people of the world, but the influences of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. What we just saw, it comes from that antichrist fueled by Satan, putting it out. The world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. As God's people, we want to develop hearts that are less and less satisfied with the things of this world and are more and more satisfied with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have that, if that sounds foreign to you, ask God to open the eyes of your heart that you see the beauty, the attractiveness, the awesomeness of Almighty God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and ask Him to have the same passion that God the Father has for His Son, Jesus, would be alive in you. That was the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. He said, God, may my church have the same passion for me that you have for me. Let that be in the hearts of everyone who calls themselves a follower of me. We have to ask for that. 
consistently in this world where we get easily deceived. I have two resources for you that I hope will help cultivate that as well. The first one is this. It's a book by Nancy Guthrie. I highly recommend, and here's why I recommend it. It's all about the book of Revelation. And now, since we've been walking through this book since January, the book of Revelation is fresh in your mind. It's fresh in your heart. As you read this book, you're going to say, oh yeah, I remember when we talked about that on Sunday. And now Nancy Guthrie, who's an amazing Bible teacher, takes those things and applies them to your life in ways that I can't on Sunday morning even. And as you read this book, you're going to make connections of things we talked about. And you're going to see how in applying this book of Revelation, as it promises in chapter 1, whoever hears and says and reads these words will be blessed. And you will receive a blessing that you won't even be able to imagine. So I, imagine, I encourage you to read and buy blessed by Nancy Guthrie. She has this quote about the chapter we just looked at, chapter 17 of Revelation. She says, hearing and keeping this passage must mean that day by day and year after year, we are finding that our love for our true bridegroom Jesus is squeezing out any lingering love of the world. That's what Revelation 17 is all about. And if you're not much of a reader, Nancy Guthrie has an amazing podcast by the same name called Blessed, 20-minute episodes on the book of Revelation where she interviews scholars and they talk about how to apply this blessed book to your life. And there's another thing that will help us cultivate this. I'm excited that today we launch our Crossview Bible reading plan. We are going to read the Bible together as a church family. What a blessing this is going to be. We're going to read it together. We're going to be on the same things. We're going to, it's going to go through the New Testament and Psalms. There's a five-day-a-week reading plan, Monday through Friday. Then you have the weekends to either catch up or reflect. And we're going to do this together as a church family. And how great it's going to be. We're going to journey all the way from now to May reading these things. You can get a copy of this Bible reading plan at the Welcome Center. It's also on our website. We have a sheet you can stick right in your Bible. And each day you pull that out. And together as a church family, we're going to immerse our hearts in God's word and ask him to cut off any allegiances we have with the world and unite us as one corporate church body in obedience and faithfulness to you. What a beautiful thing. This is the time for a new school year. It's time to reset. So let's reset with these things. I could sum up this entire sermon with this phrase. The world and all its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. May we be those people. Let's pray.